0: we need to talk about postpartum psychosis. Content warning, homicide, harm of children, mental illness, suicide. On January 4th, 2023, around 6pm, Patrick Clancy of Duxbury, Massachusetts returned home from getting takeout to find his wife Lindsay outside in the snow. She was injured after falling from a second story window. Patrick called 911. First responders entered their home and discovered their three children inside, unconscious, with obvious signs of trauma. Their two children, five-year-old Cora and three-year-old Dawson, were soon pronounced dead. Their eight-month-old baby was transferred to a Boston hospital in critical condition and died three days later. District Attorney Tim Cruz said it appeared the children were strangled. I learned about Lindsay's story through a Facebook group for L&D nurses, where Lindsay, an L&D nurse, is also a member. Lindsay's friends and coworkers remarked how she was in an intensive five-day-a-week program for her postpartum depression, and that her husband was only gone for 25 minutes when the tragedy occurred. Could Lindsay be suffering from postpartum psychosis? According to Postpartum Support International, postpartum psychosis occurs in approximately 1 to 2 out of every thousand births, or 0.1%. The onset is often sudden, but can happen anytime time within the postpartum period. Symptoms include an altered sense of reality, hallucinations, hyperactivity, paranoia, or difficulty communicating psychosis includes delusional thinking and irrational judgment in its acute state it often requires an inpatient hospital admission with close supervision enhanced safety measures and carefully titrated antipsychotic medications these are different from antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications postpartum anxiety depression and psychosis are medical conditions like asthma diabetes are heart disease. For postpartum people, they are some of the most lethal. Suicide is a leading cause of death in the perinatal period. Social media commentary in response to Lindsay's story reveals how little the public understands about postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, especially postpartum psychosis. I'm sorry if I'm in the minority here, one member in the L&D nurse group wrote, but Lindsay is a monster. I get that parenting is hard, but the difference between a sane person and insane person is that the sane person knows not to act out these horrendous acts despite the feeling of hopelessness and rage. It's painful and infuriating to read comments like these, but it's important to understand them. To jurors of public opinion, it's true. People afflicted with postpartum depression, anxiety, and psychosis do believe they are monsters. I know it myself because I've lived it. To hear a stranger say the word out loud, monster, validates our assumptions about ourselves. When we hear someone afflicted with a postpartum mood disorder called a monster, it reveals a lot about how the culture views postpartum people in general. Those of us with monstrous monstrous thoughts shouldn't risk telling on ourselves. Misconceptions abound. Our condition exists in a vacuum due to a pure lack of motivation, a failure to live up to our personal responsibility. It's our own fault if we don't seek help or what happens when we do. What happens when we call 911 and tell the truth? Will the authorities commit us and take our babies away? Those who contemplate, attempt, or complete the act of ending their children's lives may believe they are acting mercifully. The delusion of their psychosis makes them believe that in doing so, they are actually protecting their children, shielding them from greater harm or danger, or that their children would needlessly suffer if forced to grow up with a parent, dead or alive, who was a monster. Growing up, my mother worked as a criminal defense attorney. During my childhood, one of her cases shaped the trajectory of my life. Her client's name was Itsumi Koga. From time to time, I search Itsumi's name online. I can't explain why, other than it feels like visiting a house where I used to live before my memory could crystallize. When I did a search recently, I found, on a harsh winter night, November 2nd, 1995, Itsumi Koga, a Japanese woman living in the Detroit area, arose to her newborn son's cries. The sequence of events that followed is not entirely clear, but according to Mrs. Koga, she carried the infant outside and laid him on the bank of a pond. Sometime later, she awoke her husband who found the infant in the pond dead from drowning. Mrs. Koga was charged with homicide and incarcerated. I picture the rented condo where Mrs. Koga lived, beige walls and carpeting, filled with furniture that didn't belong to her. I picture her discharge instructions from the hospital on how to care for her baby, written in English, explained to her by someone who did not call a Japanese interpreter. I picture Michigan in November, where the branches of the trees are bare and no longer obscure the view of traffic on the freeway, cold, inhospitable darkness. The truth is that even as a child, I loved Itsumi and like my mother, I longed to protect her. My first thought when I read Lindsay's story, how easily it could have been me, you, any of us. When I was six weeks postpartum, I found myself one night on a bridge over the San Diego River, wanting more than anything to jump. I think of my friends, co-workers, and postpartum clients who've been honest with me over the years. These are beautiful, caring, conscientious mothers who sat and described vivid thoughts of injuring their babies and harming themselves. Some describe their experience of postpartum mood disorders and how, as instructed, they did reach out to loved ones for help. In most cases, they were told what they were feeling was wrong and that they just had to try harder. Finding a treatment plan that worked and was affordable was a prohibitive, labor-intensive process that sometimes took years. Orchestrating that kind of care for yourself is a struggle without a mental health condition, let alone for someone whose own brain is lying to them. On Facebook, Lindsay Clancy posted countless photos of herself with her children. Something about Lindsay's face is familiar. She could easily be one of my co-workers. In one picture, she sits in a beach chair, beaming, her child wrapped in a towel, their legs slung around her waist. An easy summer day. One of Lindsay's neighbors messages me. She loved those babies so much. How How many people will condemn her and agree she is a monster? What would justice for Lindsay's children look like? In the American judicial system, we have few examples of restorative justice. The Peacemaker Court on the Navajo Nation illustrates a beautiful exception. Unlike the criminal defense and justice system in the United States, Diné Law mandates that people convicted of crimes on the Navajo Nation receive supportive services administered by a peacemaker court that focuses on alternative dispute resolution and traditional mediation practices used ancestrally. District Court Judge Carol Perry would teach young lawyers about her practice of visiting incarcerated people post-conviction to smudge them with cedar smoke She taught that people who committed crimes did so not because they were bad, but because their trauma haunted them. The cedar allowed traumatic memories to retreat from their day-to-day thinking back into long-term memory where it could no longer cause harm to them or others. I asked my mom about Itsumi Koga. Don't you remember, my mom tells me, your little brother saw me on the news during her press conference. Sam, my toddler brother, kept shouting, it's mommy. Why is mommy on the TV? My mom tells me it was me who answered him, calmly explaining, mama is helping a lady who took her baby swimming when she wasn't supposed to. My mom explains that a key aspect of Itsumi's defense was the testimony of an expert forensic psychologist and psychiatrist. Together, they provided clear evidence of Itsumi's psychotic behavior and thinking in the earliest days after her son's death. The team removed Itsumi's shackles and had her transferred to the University of Michigan Hospital where they administered antipsychotic medication. My mom described watching Itsumi return from the fog of postpartum psychosis. When Itsumi finally regained lucid thought, it was my mother who told her what she had done to her son. What was that like, I asked my mom. I've never seen anyone so broken, she replies. The testimony of the psychiatrist and psychologist helped Itsumi's judge, Jessica Cooper, understand that postpartum psychosis is a psychological and medical condition that completely overtakes a person. During a psychotic state, they can't remember their actions, let alone be held accountable. Ultimately, the judge permitted Itsumi to serve out her six-month sentence at Rose Hill Psychiatric Care Center before she was deported back to Japan. There, Itsumi's rehabilitation included roaming the gardens and tending the farm animals. My mom once took my little brother Sam to visit her there to watch the release of the yearlings. Judge Cooper later reported that presiding over Itsumi's case was one of the most satisfying experiences in her career. She remarked that she was more proud of the outcome of Itsumi's case than any of her other work. The judge began Itsumi Koga's court proceedings, certain of her guilt. But as she began to understand postpartum psychosis and how it shaped Itsumi's fate, she changed her mind. Grief is a spiral. It leaves an indentation upon us. This mark is within us, folded up inside, layered by time. We shift in our planetary rotation, tilt and spin, unfold and refold. Sometimes grief comes to visit. I never received the treatment I needed for my postpartum depression. I couldn't afford to pay for a therapist out of pocket and I had stigmatized the idea of taking medication. Access to either required my admitting to myself that I wasn't okay and I needed help. The prospect of telling the truth was terrifying Knowing what I know now, the fact that my daughter and I both survived is a miracle. Thinking about Lindsay opens up grief for me and for many others whose stories may have ended like hers. I am also surprised by the deep feelings of gratitude that my daughter and I are still alive. 11 years later, I breathe in these everyday weeknight miracles. I watch my daughter eat blueberries. Memorize her spelling words and practice her volleyball serve. She radiates confidence and easy joy. I can't believe how far we've come. I can't believe we survived. We survived. We survived. When a parent succumbs to postpartum psychosis and completes the act of nightmares, how do we forgive them? Maybe we should ask ourselves, is it even our responsibility to forgive? Perhaps it is instead time to condemn the systems that failed them. Any parent of young children knows these systemic failures by heart. Lack of postpartum mental health screening, a desert of medical care in the first day's postpartum, lack of paid family leave, friends and family living thousands of miles away, vast swaths of time with little to no community or or social support, lack of public awareness about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, their prevention and treatment, it all converges to shape a treacherous terrain of early parenthood. Maybe it's time to forgive ourselves for tolerating the circumstances that made Lindsay's children's deaths possible. Maybe the only thing that will heal us is to do everything we can so it doesn't happen again.